0: Welcome to the buzz, I’m Christopher Conover. As the COVID-19 pandemic continues, vaccine hesitancy has become a top discussion point. This week we look at what public health is doing about people who choose not to get vaccinated. This week, the FDA announced its approval for COVID-19 boosters for people who receive the Moderna and Johnson and Johnson inoculations. We spoke to Pima County Health Director Dr. Teresa Cullen just hours before the news was released. She says the medical advice used to be you had to get the same brand of booster as your original shot. But she says that's not the case anymore.
1: This concept of mix and match, which means your booster does not have to be consistent with what you previously got, either J&J or Pfizer and Moderna, will most likely be approved. You know, this has happened... Well, there's lots of data around this just because people have been doing this anyway. And so there's been tracking of it. And there does not seem to be any adverse effects, no reason to not allow it. There is some early data, especially with J&J, that indicates that if you get a Pfizer or Moderna as your second shot, you actually get more of a boost than you'd get if you just get the J&J booster. We would probably still recommend that you try to get, at least for Pfizer and Moderna, for the mRNA vaccines, what you previously got for the first two. However, you could get either, uh, you could mix and match. And then with J&J, I think we're uh, going to have to see what happens, but we know there will be boosters for the J&J people.
0: How do people know when it's okay to go get a booster or, or when they're eligible?
1: So we do believe that everybody that got J&J, which is not a large number in the county, probably less than 20,000 people, will be able, if you're over 18, to get the booster. And there are some age limitations. What I would say to people is bear with us as we go along. It does seem to change regularly. And then for the booster, remember the the major category that opens up to a lot of people is anyone who is at risk for COVID because of their work or their living conditions. So if you are a frontline worker right now and over 18, and you've gotten Pfizer, you are eligible for your Pfizer booster. We expect to see that same kind of fairly broad determination of who's eligible for a booster with Moderna and Pfizer. And to remind people with J&J, it'll be anybody over 18 can get a booster. And then where to find it, Uh, I would recommend people go to our website. The Pima County Health Department website has a vaccine part of it, and we update that fairly regularly.
0: When the vaccines first started coming out, we all remember the long lines, the you might want to get it, but you couldn't get signed up for a couple of days. Do we anticipate the same with the boosters or have we figured out a better system for it or will there just be a different demand?
1: We have put together as Pima County Health Department a, a plan for how we are going we're going to approach the boosters and so you may be aware that our Abram's health facility, we have the first floor dedicated right now to boosters. We've been a little taken aback by the lack of people that have come. On an average day, we get 30 to 100 people. We can do a lot more boosters than that. We would encourage people to come. I also want to take this opportunity to remind people, if you haven't initiated your vaccination series, you should do that too, and you can do that at any of the same places. So we, we, we've we planned appropriately. We do have a backup plan. If we see an accelerated need, we will open up one another satellite place that we've coordinated with the city of Tucson. So I don't think people should anticipate that those long lines, remember around like the TCC, those will not be happening right now. I want to clarify, we actually may open a small site at TCC if we have a need, but it won't be a mega site. So just to be clear with that. If you bring your vaccination card, it is so helpful because then we don't have to spend the time looking you up in what we call the ACEs system, which is the state immunization record system. We try to look everybody up. If you don't have your card, just so we can clarify, when did you get your shot? Is it appropriate for you to get a shot at this time and what kind of shot you received in the past? So if you have that immunization card, please bring it. There's also a way on our website, if you've lost it, on the Pima County Health Department website, you can request to get a copy of your immunization record. We direct you to a place that the state is doing that.
0: One of the things that happened to a lot of people, myself included, is we had some side effects. Uh, You know, I felt like I had the flu for a little while. Can we expect that with the booster also?
1: We do anticipate that people that had side effects previously will have similar side effects, but they should not anticipate that they will be worse. So I think that that's the important thing. And we're still seeing the same number and types of side effects, fatigue, muscle ache, a little pain where you got the shot, pretty similar things that we see with other shots like the flu shot.
0: Looking at the numbers, more than half of Pima County, no matter how you look at the numbers, be it the entire population or those who are currently eligible, and certainly those over 65, is a huge number of people who are fully vaccinated, but there's still a lot of people out there who aren't. What's going on with the push to get people just to begin the series, let alone the booster?
1: A few days ago, almost 97% of people that were 65 and over have initiated the series, and almost 88% are fully immunized. However, you are right. As an entire county, we're about 59% fully immunized. That includes everybody in the county, and about 68% for those greater than 12 who are able to be immunized. What are we doing? Uh, We are trying to work with the community to identify why people are still not receiving the vaccine. And part of public health is to really take people where they are, try to increase and and gain an understanding of why they are making this decision and try to mitigate whatever their concerns are. But overall it's important for us to recognize that there's still a myriad number of reasons. They include things like, I am an hourly wage worker, and if I get ill, I don't have any sick leave, and I'm not going to be able to have enough money for my rent this month. So really critical things related to fiscal disparity that we need to be cognizant of. And I think some of it is also people are still worried and scared about the vaccine. Remember, Chris, we're almost a year into this. We started December 15th. So in two months, we we will have done this for 12 months. Millions and millions and millions of uh, Americans have been immunized. Millions of people in the county. Over 1.3 million shots have been given. It's a very significant number, and we are just not seeing any concerning trends.
0: That was Pima County Health Director Dr. Teresa Cullen. The federal government is close to making a final decision concerning children as young as five getting a COVID-19 vaccine. But some parents are still worried about what that could mean for their children. Dr. Nathan Price, a pediatric infectious disease specialist at Banner University Medical Center, says there's no need for concern.
2: The vaccine has been studied in children they looked at its effects in thousands of children before they brought it to market. And now they've looked at the effects in hundreds of thousands to millions of children after it's been at, in the market here in the United States and also worldwide. So the vaccine that's being used in children is the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. It's an mRNA vaccine. What that does is that basically gives this messenger molecule into the cells so the cell can produce a protein that the immune system will recognize. That way when the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the virus that causes COVID disease shows up in the body, the immune system will recognize it. The good news is is that mRNA breaks down, it doesn't stick around in the body, it doesn't change the patient's DNA, and it doesn't have any long-standing effects that we can see at this point. Again, nothing's perfect. We don't have, you know, years and years of data because this is a new vaccine. there's not any biological theory that I'm aware of that would explain the potential for a long-term problem because of the type of vaccine that we're using, even though it's a new vaccine. Then when you look at what actually happens to children when they get this vaccine, it's pretty similar to what happens in adults. They may get a sore arm. They may get some fever. They may feel achy. Again, things that you would expect with vaccines. Some rare things can happen. And so when you look at Trying to avoid risk. If someone wants to avoid risk, the best way to do it is to get the vaccine, even in young children, because young children are still getting the disease and still getting severe problems with the disease itself. So if you compare the numbers to the severe disease, comparing to the numbers of severe problems with the vaccine, the real risk is in the disease itself.
0: Early on in the pandemic, we heard that children weren't getting COVID, it seemed like, at least according to the data. We've seen changes in that now. Do we have any idea why we've seen those changes, or did it just take time for the data to catch up?
2: I think people are still trying to sort that out exactly, but what we do know is that with the new variants, and Delta in particular, it's much more contagious than the prior variants were. And so early on, we didn't see as many children getting infected at at first, and then we realized that a lot of them were getting infected but not as sick. This time around, I think we're probably seeing a bit of both. We're certainly seeing more children get infected, but they may be getting more sick. That more sick part is a little hard to tell because it may just be the absolute numbers of infections have been higher, and so if you have a low rate of bad disease, well, if your overall numbers go up, then your overall numbers of bad disease are going to but certainly children are getting sick and some of them are getting very sick. We find that if a child is sick enough to get into the hospital, a third or more of them actually are sick enough to require intensive care unit care. And some of them do die. We've had hundreds of children die in the United States from this disease already.
0: Does any of the conversation around vaccines and treatment change as we move to the younger Children being able to be vaccinated, that 5 to 11-year-old group? People will
2: talk about, you know, is there a difference of risk and benefit depending on what your age group is. And if, again, you look at your overall numbers of who gets really severe disease and who is going to have the biggest risk of problems with severe disease, it's going to be much older adults and people who are immune compromised. And so that risk does go down the younger you get. And the more young and healthy you tend to be, usually the less problem you have with the disease. And so people will bring that into the conversation and look at, well, if there's a risk of an adverse effect from the vaccine, does it still outweigh the risk of an adverse effect from the disease? And if you look at the data that's out there at this point in time, the risk of the disease, no matter what age you are, is still higher than the risk of any sort of adverse outcome that you can get with the vaccine.
0: There are obviously plenty of questions about COVID and the vaccine out there. Is there something that maybe you haven't mentioned that you really want parents of children to know about as we move forward through this pandemic?
2: I think it's really important that people realize that the vaccine makers have not cut any corners to bring this vaccine to market. Yes, it came out quickly Yes, there was emergency use authorization by the FDA, and we're hoping that's going to happen for this younger age group any day now, but despite all of that, they still had to make sure it was safe along all the steps of of the way, and they had to make sure it was safe in animal studies. They had to make sure that it was safe in older humans, and now they're making sure that it's safe in younger humans. They also had to make sure it was effective all along those ways, and again, they've done that all along the way. Not only that looking at how safe and effective these vaccines are. So even though these vaccines are now being given to hundreds of millions of people, they're still taking a very close look to make sure that we're not causing harm. And if something does change, they're doing a really good job of looking at that very quickly and saying, oh, maybe we need to put a pause on this for a little while while we get more information or, or say, no, the data is still supporting that risk and benefit ratio.
0: That was Dr. Nathan Price, a pediatrician at Banner UMC in Tucson. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week we're talking about changes to who can get COVID-19 vaccines and why many people are still resisting. If you look at the number of vaccinated people across the country, rural areas are lagging behind urban areas as a general rule. However, in Arizona, Santa Cruz County has one of the highest vaccination rates in the state. Dr. Daniel Dirksen with the Arizona Center for Rural Health says populations hard hit by COVID are the same groups who struggled with health disparities before the pandemic. We've seen the populations most affected by those
3: those outcomes, uh, those negative outcomes, uh, are those also most affected by the social determinants of health. So uh, other uh, social determinants include income level, um, whether or not you have health insurance, whether or not you have access to health services, Um, the health infrastructure in rural and then urban underserved areas tends to be uh, much more fragile and often more distant and inaccessible uh, to those populations that have been hit so hard uh, by the pandemic. And then unfortunately, we're seeing the same uh, types of things as far as. Uh, those populations that really need the vaccination protection the most are often the ones with um, the lower uptakes. And we have a lot of work to do, um, even in the larger metropolitan counties that you think would have a much better access to uh, health services and the health infrastructure, vaccinations, et cetera. Uh, We still have uh, very um, significant pockets where the vaccination rate is um, alarmingly low. We've also seen a decrease in the normal uh, childhood vaccinations.
0: When it comes to vaccine disparity, is there a racial component to this also? There is. And um, across the United
3: States, you know, those uh, the three populations that have been disproportionately affected have been African-American, American-Indian and Hispanic-Latino populations in our state, uh, we've seen that as well. Now that's not uniform, you know, not every county and every community is the same. For example, Santa Cruz County, you know, with Nogales is uh, one of the places has done extremely well with vaccination rates, uh, extraordinarily well. We see that also in in Navajo County where the Navajo Nation, you know, that huge swath of of land that extends uh, well into New Mexico and even up into Utah and a significant part of Northeastern Arizona, has done also extremely well as far as vaccination. And, uh, you know, they were hit very hard, those the, those two areas, before vaccinations were available. Uh, but they've been able to mobilize their community, their community leaders, and their community members, really to have an extraordinarily strong response.
0: It seems like based on some of the information that you all have gathered and you put out recently, that some of the rural counties are more what you call vulnerable to those lower vaccination rates. For example, Greenlee County, Pinal County, what causes that rural versus urban difference? These aren't homogenous
3: areas or communities. The the populations uh, vary between, you know, if you're looking at Yuma County or La Paz County on the western edge of the state, bordering with California. You have a lot of workers that, that come and go, depending on uh, what work is available. Um, this is the time of year where we see a lot of, um, uh, you know, workers coming in and uh, helping with, you know, that very time constrained uh, period to get uh, citrus picked or uh, crops planted or or, or dealt with and, and then moving on. And it's often a, a challenge uh, to uh, make the vaccines so available uh, based on their work hours and um you know for follow-up uh, they may be a hundred miles away they may be in a, a different state or even a different country um you know by the time uh, they're due for their follow-up or for their booster part of the success in the along uh, you know our border uh, uh, you know the four counties that um, uh, border with uh, mexico um, they've done some very good work collaboratively uh, with the Mexican consulate
0: it really sounds like when it comes to getting into these underserved communities and shrinking that disparity the ads on tv from the governor the ads on the highway the interstate the big signs that's not what's going to work it's direct one-on-one contact and doing things like the pop-up clinics am i reading that correctly i think that's a a, a part of it i i uh, i spent some time uh, visiting
3: um uh, some of the critical access hospitals, uh, uh, the, the, the one in, uh, in White Mountain Regional in, in Springerville, Arizona, way on the eastern edge of the state, almost on the New Mexico line there. Some people call uh, these areas the hard to reach populations. Uh, some others refer to them as the hardly reached populations. And then the mobile units really do give us a bit more reach uh, for those that are maybe disabled or reluctant to go in because they don't want to be exposed uh, to individuals who may be um, ill with COVID-19. So uh, the mobile units are just another tool uh, that we use. We have to make it as easy in in Duncan, Arizona, as it is in uh, Tucson, Arizona, uh, to get those. And even in in places like Phoenix that have a lot of sites and a a lot of vaccines uh, going in people's arms on a daily basis. There are areas where we're still not reaching that we have to really use the data to help guide us uh, where we need to spend more time and, and uh, education, again, through um, the individuals that they, they
0: rely on for that information. That was Dr. Daniel Dirksen with the Arizona Center for Rural Health. One of the recurring questions when it comes to COVID-19 vaccines is why are people choosing not to get the vaccine? Maya Block is the lead graduate student on a research group with the University of Arizona's Alliance for Vaccine Literacy. Her group looked into vaccine hesitancy concerning the flu vaccine and the COVID-19 vaccine. Block says one difference is that the flu has been normalized.
4: There was also a difference in um, the political factor. For example, a lot of people were worried that COVID-19 vaccines were being developed too quickly um, due to um, political issues and being worried about whether or not it was safe. But with flu, it tended to be not as much of a factor. Um, For COVID-19, there were also worries about information consistency. For example, a lot of um, people expressed worries about how they didn't really know what to trust and how the CDC is retracting information on their website they don't. They saw that as very frustrating and not really knowing who to trust or where to what they could trust.
0: Have you seen the interest or the barriers to getting the COVID-19 vaccine change over time as this research has gone forward?
4: So we have done just two phases of our study. First, we started with um, the focus groups in about a year ago, um, in the fall of 2020. And so then we saw a lot of worries about politics for the COVID-19 vaccine and worries about being um, living guinea pigs, about personal choice. The personal choice matter seems to have carried over pretty well, but the politics issue has become a little bit less of an issue now that we've moved away from um, election season, for instance.
0: Are there specific subgroups, be they gender, uh, socioeconomic, racial subgroups? Have you seen one that's changed more than others, or are these changes the same across all groups?
4: If you were to look at just the data that we collected this last spring for the quantitative data, we do see that there are differences across demographic groups. For example, significantly less Hispanics agreed that they were likely or extremely likely to get a COVID-19 vaccine if recommended by a healthcare provider than non-Hispanics. Um, and significantly less African Americans agreed that they were likely to get a COVID-19 vaccine if recommended by a healthcare provider than non-African Americans. Several older individuals were more likely to agree that they had not yet received the COVID-19 vaccine because the registration process was too complicated. Um, that was more of an issue at the beginning of The release of the vaccine, so hopefully a lot of those barriers have become have have been overcome since then. Uh, We gave them the statement: getting infected with COVID nineteen does not worry me, and more males were likely to agree with that statement than females. That could potentially be again an issue and a reason to talk to to males (laughs) more about. Why COVID 19 may actually be uh, an issue for them, especially younger men.
0: So, do you have any suggestions about how to talk to people, maybe in your family, your friends, people you work with, about the vaccine, about getting the vaccine, and what their opinions are?
4: We have been holding some um, groups. These workshops have been focused on how to uh, hold vaccine conversations with those loved ones in your family and your friends, groups that might not be willing to get the vaccine. And we've been trying to talk about how the vaccine hesitancy spectrum is very different for different vaccines as well as uh, for different people. They may choose to accept all vaccines or refuse all vaccines. They may be somewhere in the middle, accept some vaccines and not accept other vaccines. But also if they are Going to be on one side of the spectrum and be completely against getting a vaccine at all, it might not be worthwhile having a conversation with that person, or it may take a really long time, a lot of conversations before that person may be willing to come across and actually get vaccinated. It's very easy to come to somebody that you love and you care about and say, Well, you're not getting vaccinated. Why aren't you getting vaccinated? And then you list all the reasons why they have to get vaccinated. But just because you list the reasons why they have to get vaccinated, that doesn't mean that you're going to sway them because you might not actually be addressing their hesitancy, their concerns. And so it's important for us to listen, understand where those concerns and hesitancies are coming from. And after you listen, then ask permission to share, which is another big one, because sometimes that person might not be willing to listen to you or ready to receive the advice that you have to share. And if they're not ready and willing to listen to you, maybe you need to find who their trusted source of information is and talk to them um, or present them information that comes from that trusted source of information. This has to be their choice and it's not our choice to make for other people.
0: When it comes to the information that you and the rest of the team are gathering, what's your hope that the next time a pandemic comes around, because we know eventually it will happen again, that this information can go forward and help with the response to the next pandemic?
4: A lot of the concerns that people had towards the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of the distrust that they had, hopefully we can try to avoid um, in the future moving forward and try to create a better system where we could be able to create more of an understanding of the vaccine creation process, of how science works, of why the information changed so frequently over time. The CDC, for example, created many recommendations and various recommendations over time based off of the information that they had on hand. And unfortunately, a lot of people interpreted that as information inconsistency. But the truth of the matter was is that they were get, gathering new information all the time as things were moving along. And as they made new discoveries and were able to learn new things, those recommendations did change. And they had to change because at different points of time, we needed different things to happen.
0: That was Maya Block with the Alliance for Vaccine Literacy. And that's The Buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Emma Gibson produced this week's show. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening.
1: Arizona
2: Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.